Welcome to Rooted and Reaching, a podcast about founders and entrepreneurs and their stories from the South Bend Elkhart region. My name is Nick Kuhn, and today with me is Paul Anthony of Upstart. Hey, Paul. Hey, Nick. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. me. Thanks for being here. It's great to have you. We're going to jump right in. Uh, you're from South Bend. I am. Yeah. Born in 1992 at either St. Joe or Memorial Hospital. Well, I'm not sure which one. Well, there's no more guessing at your age. You're, uh, <laughs> you're a, a young founder, and we're uh, full of energy. We're glad to have you. So tell us a little bit about growing up in South Bend. What was your experience like here? I thought South Bend was a wonderful place to grow up. It's a very family-driven community. And I feel like relative to people I knew who grew up in other areas, you grow up around a full spectrum of people from various socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, various walks of life. And it's not really a siloed, you know, you go to an elite private school and you meet a lot of people who are you know, just like you type of environment, mm-hmm. you really do grow up in a true community around uh, people from all different worlds. And I uh, always appreciated that element of it. That's cool. That may play into your story a little bit later on, but uh, let's continue <laughs> kind of down your path. You went to Notre Dame. Is that right? I did. Uh, yep. Degree in finance? Uh, degree in finance. Correct. You always been a numbers guy? I guess. Uh, I was more of a guy who didn't know what he wanted to study <laughs> and hadn't found a passion yet. And I heard that finance was the easiest major that produced the highest income after graduation. So I took that route. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and uh, post-graduation, uh, what was that journey like? So post-graduation, I sort of followed the crowd from Notre Dame to investment banking. I was at William Blair in Chicago, which was an awesome firm and a great experience for me. And I got lucky to be pulled into the technology group there. I did not know much about tech as an industry, but uh, I ended up working on a bunch of software M&A deals during a time when software M&A was really hot and had a great experience there. Learned quite a bit. Spent two years at William Blair and then moved over to Adam Street Partners, which was a venture capital firm in Chicago, we were writing kind of 10 to $30 million checks into companies at Series B or C and beyond. So I got to participate in a number of investments there that, that were quite interesting and, uh, and learned a lot. We were working with that group as well. Any takeaways or a fun story from that, that era, that phase? It was certainly a crazy time. You know, had to work very hard, but also learned quite a bit from it. You know, in hindsight, there's a lot of post-college lessons that I think you pick up in any career. And maybe some of that's just accelerated in, in the world I was working in. But I think that there were some, some really fun moments where we got to participate in you know, selling companies for hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and seeing those founders you know, realize kind of their, their life's work. And that moment was really inspiring to me. There were other moments you know, on the investing side where we had to say no to businesses that mm. I, I really liked and to founders that I was really impressed by. And uh, that hurt quite a lot. I, I hated that. I felt like as, as a VC, I was completely underqualified to say no to any of the founders I ran into. And I just wanted to be helpful to people and not have to make those hard decisions on uh, whether they deserved our money or not. Um, so it, it spanned all sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I agree. I, at Elevate Ventures, I, I've been able to witness a, a numerous, hundreds of pitches at this point. And at the first few weeks, first few months, I'm like, these are all great. You get money, you get money, you get money. And then I saw the process of how a decision is actually made. Not everybody gets money and it, it, it can be a little bit arduous and there's a lot more no's than there is yeses. Yeah. And you have to be disciplined because otherwise you're going to be a one fund you know, firm hmm. and that's not going to be helpful to anyone. So it's, I, I understand why that's the case. Not everybody can get the money, but as an investor, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, which is there's some imposter syndrome around questioning founders and telling them their idea is not worth 
your money when uh, they've done so much more than at least at, at my stage, I felt like I ever did in my career. Mm, interesting. So from there, you took a little bit of a deviant turn or deviation, I should say. From there, you took a little bit of a deviation from the traditional path. Uh, I'm curious to learn more about uh, your work in Dominican Republic and how you got there. Yeah. So my roommate from college went to the Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic while I was working in finance in Chicago. We were very different paths and I caught up with him quite a bit and was in very close touch and thought his his world was fascinating. I was particularly jealous as someone who was working as part of a a large group right, of, of finance professionals in Chicago who all kind of graduated from similar universities and were pursuing similar routes and whatnot. Um, I didn't feel much like I was having really an impact. I was just kind of one of a, a number of people. And um, when I looked at what my friend was doing in the Dominican Republic, it was fascinating because I could see so much direct impact that he was having on building a community, on improving people's lives. Um, he was truly becoming a leader in, in his world. And, and I thought that was really inspiring. So I visited there and spent uh, about 10 days living with him in a barrio in Constanza, the dead center of the Dominican Republic, before I started my job at Adam Street in venture capital. And uh, I think that was a pretty life-changing experience. We ended up working together on a project to build a basketball court at a school down there um, where I helped raise the money and then he did all the hard stuff. And uh, his time as a Peace Corps volunteer was coming to a close about six-ish months after that. And he started calling me, kind of workshopping an idea on how we could use technology to initiate more data-driven development, which would be led by locals who can identify their own needs and pick out which projects they want to happen in their own communities. I thought it was a wonderful idea. The technology component resonated with me having been on at least the finance side of the tech industry for a few years. And I felt like they could use help from someone who had a little bit more business expertise and uh, candidly fundraising connections as well. So I decided to leave Adam Street and join them full-time in you know, the late spring or early summer of 2018. It was myself, my co-founder, Scott Kappa, who was my roommate in college, and then Hope Tambala was the third co-founder. Um, and he was a fellow Peace Corps volunteer who had taught himself to code living in a barrio that didn't have internet. So he would drive to the capital city of Santo Domingo, download you know, pirated textbooks on his computer, and then go home and practice coding until he built our platform. So I was working with some really impressive people. We built a, a data network called Puente that allows local people to download a mobile app, survey their friends and neighbors, log um, verified development needs in their community. And then we feed that data through some algorithms and try and match them with nonprofits based in the US or Canada who meet the needs of the community. Historically, nonprofits have generally shown up in international communities with a specific project they're capable of doing and kind of tried to fit a square peg into a round hole, if you will. You know, the community might not need new housing infrastructure, for instance, but if the nonprofit bought a brought a bunch of people from the construction industry to do a project, they're going to work on housing infrastructure. So we wanted to sort of flip that script and allow communities to dictate what's getting done in their backyards. And we've done that. So our, our data network and mobile app is now being used in nine countries internationally. We still do the majority of our work in the Dominican Republic, and we've gotten involved in actually executing projects based on the data insights, because sometimes you can't find enough other nonprofit partners to do all the work that we can see that really needs to be done. So at this point, I think we've built 
several hundred bathrooms, distributed hundreds of water filters. We've uh, improved the health infrastructure, sanitation infrastructure, and access to medical care for uh, tens of thousands of Dominicans at this point. The, the learning curve sounds amazing. And the experience that you had there really, it seems as if it made an impact on your life and the way that you, you live on a day-to-day level at this point. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think I, I spent two years living in the Dominican Republic doing this, and, and the lessons from that are, are very meaningful. I think it did reinforce how much community matters to me. And uh, in, in a place like that, you know, it, it is incredibly communal in, in every way, shape, or form. People take care of each other. People depend on one another. Mm-hmm. Even when you look at things like the development projects we do, you know, if 10% of a given community doesn't have a clean bathroom to use, everybody in that community is going to be sick more often, right? Because they, they're so closely connected. And I think helping people realize that in the Dominican Republic also, you know, had an impact on me and thinking through, you know, I'm from a community in South Bend that I, I care about deeply and little changes to help those who are most marginalized in a community like this, they really do permeate to everybody in South Bend. So that's a, that's a mentality I've definitely taken with me. Interesting. And, and we'll drop the link to that in the, in the show notes so that people can check it out and the work that is still going on. Let's kind of change gears a little bit. Um, you shifted away from that work into what you're currently doing. How do, can you tell us about that process and that transition? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, can't, I didn't see myself as a lifelong nonprofit guy when I started this. Uh, I was mostly interested in, in doing a, a startup organization, figuring out what that would be like. I thought I would spend about six months in the Dominican Republic getting Puente off the ground, and that turned into two years. But eventually, it was, it was time for me to move on and, uh, and get a paycheck again. When I looked at you know, what I wanted to do, there were a couple insights that were top of mind. One, as I mentioned earlier, as a VC, I hated saying no to startups. I wanted to be helpful to everyone. So I thought, whatever I do next, I'd like to be really helpful to other founders um, and not have to judge them. Uh, number two, when I was at Puente, my formal title was uh, the CFO. And uh, I made so many mistakes in that role. <laughs> I can't even begin to start. Figuring out what we had to do for taxes was a complete mess. I paid the other two co-founders as contractors via PayPal for like the first year. you know, And we weren't even sure if they were citizens of the Dominican Republic or the US at that point. I was keeping our books in a spreadsheet on Google Sheets. Like I, it, it was a total mess. I made so many mistakes, and uh, and I realized, you know, that it's kind of funny. We had a unique advantage, you would think, by having a co-founder who came from a finance background at Puente. Most startups don't have that, and even in our case, there were there was a lot of messiness and a lot of mistakes made. So I kind of set out to learn what I should have done better, and then provide that as a service to other founders. Um, so we built this new company, Opstart, to be a finance function as a service for startups. The goal being that you can, as a founder, get coverage for all of the various back office financial things that might keep you up at night, whether that's niche compliance stuff, like figuring out which taxes apply to your business, or whether people should be paid as employees or contractors, whether it's strategic finance needs, like tracking your metrics and figuring out how to pitch to investors, or whether it's just the day-to-day blocking and tackling, like chasing down payments or paying your vendors or categorizing your transactions. All of that stuff takes time, it takes expertise, and it 
generally just as a drag on the entrepreneurial experience in America. I think most people would agree that that stuff is a necessary evil to starting a business, much more so than something you're excited to do as an entrepreneur. Something you have to do. It's a, uh, it, it is, and as founding several companies in my past, it's not the thing that I look forward to, nor do I. Uh, I try to outsource it, but at the same time, that can be challenging because it can either, the cost can be overwhelming or uh, you can't, you know, it's not a good fit. Traditionally, CPAs do a lot of this work, um, the local CPA down the street. Mm-hmm. What sets Opstart apart from the traditional CPA model? Well, we, we, I heard a few experiences from people who were working with local CPAs. And to be clear, this is not, a, not meant to be any sort of shade towards local CPAs who do a great job. But you'd hear stories from some founders on this of their CPAs basically calling them in a terror, being like, Are you, do you realize you're losing money right now? <laughs> yeah, man, I raised $3 million. I'm supposed to be losing <laughs> money until I burn through that. And then I'm going to go raise 10. <laughs> and then if I do a nice job, I'm, you need to go raise more. And when I would informally advise my friends who are founders, generally, I would find that I was giving them the opposite advice as those CPAs. The CPAs would be talking about, you know, reduce your costs, build up some equity, you know, be conservative with your money. And I would come in and look at it and be like, you're not burning enough. You're not growing fast enough. You're not going to be able to raise your next round if you continue on this pace. And if you can't raise your next round, you're not going to grow into the valuation of your last round. So if you want to get profitable and just kind of trudge along here, you're going to get fired by your board. Or you can start to operate more aggressively and try to hit your growth plan. And within you know 12 months by pursuing this path, you should be in position to raise your next round. And that, that really hits the crux of the difference between a venture-backable opportunity. Exactly. And I don't want to call it a lifestyle business, but a traditional small business or a small enterprise. Mm-hmm. And you know, my parents ran a bootstrapped small business my whole life. I, I absolutely think that's a wonderful route. But coming from a background in venture capital, I felt like that was a particularly underserved audience when it came to the finance side of things. So that's your primary client base right now is venture-backed startups. Correct. And do you entertain opportunities from anything outside of that? Absolutely. We work with several bootstrapped businesses, more traditional small businesses, you know, like you said, lifestyle type businesses. Um, And we're very happy to support those founders and generally can do a great job for them. But there's a broader audience out there uh, that can work with founders like that. And in some of those businesses, you might be fine working with a local CPA who just handles your taxes at year end and maybe does a quarterly review. What we're really focused on is providing uh, the best advice and execution to companies that are looking to scale quickly. Because when you are scaling really quickly, that's when things can break more easily. And you need to be laser focused on your metrics. You need to be really well informed on how you're doing financially, because a small slip up can be catastrophic. And you provide those KPIs, those indicators, uh, the ways in which people can measure success. Yeah, exactly. We try to point their head in the right direction. And ultimately, the decision lies with the founder. But you can make better decisions if you're fully informed as to how they'll impact your runway, as to what investors are going to be looking for when you're going out to raise, when you should be thinking about going out to raise. All of that type of advice sort of feeds into what we do on the day-to-day. What challenges is Opstart currently facing? Well, I think every business is having trouble hiring right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so things have seemed better for us the last couple months. But as a tech-enabled services business, we do need to hire to keep up with capacity. And I would say that generally, we could be growing faster if we felt like we had the capacity to meet it. 
So we recently invested in a real recruiting team and, uh, and that's helped a lot. And so now we, we are looking to grow more quickly. And beyond that, we're continuing to try and productize everything that we do. So we started off with a more traditional services model to the business. We've layered in technology over time using a lot of low and no code tools and have now hired um, a number of engineers to actually build out a proprietary platform. I'm really, really excited for that to go live. I'm really optimistic as to what that can do, but obviously that's uh, going to be quite an effort. Well, you've got, you've come a long way. I'm, those are your next hurdles, but uh, it seems like you're optimistic towards those. I'm optimistic for you. I believe that you're a founder that can break through those barriers and find a way around. Thank uh, you. I'm excited for what you have in store. So curveball here, what words of wisdom would you have for yourself three years ago as Opstar was just kind of coming on? What, if you look back and say, I wish I knew, what would that be? Wow, that's such a good question. Raise earlier, hire quickly, and shoot for the stars when it comes to what people you're bringing on board. I think it took me a while to get comfortable with spending more to hire the top quality people. And uh, I think I could have probably moved earlier on that, especially on the technology side. You know, I, I could have burnt more and still raised earlier if getting a, more of a head start on the technology side and maybe even go to market as well. So that's, that's the advice I would have for myself three years ago. And if we were to go back more like five years ago when I was working in finance and thinking I wanted to do something entrepreneurial but just wasn't ready yet, it's really a one foot, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other type of process. Um, I think people think that to start a business, you need to have some sort of big aha light bulb moment and a fully fleshed out idea that no one's ever had before. And I, I found it to be the complete opposite. Everyone's had the idea that you've had, right? If you want to go after it, just go out and execute and do things one, one level at a time, build up brick by brick, just take on the next day. And you don't need to have a full you know, 10-year plan for how this is going to work. You just need to keep executing and take that first initial leap. Get that momentum going. Yeah, exactly. Learn while walking, for sure. All right, let's take another uh, slight twist here and then start to talk about the region a little bit. Being here in South Bend and some of your team is here as well, you're pretty much a remote team, but some of your team is here. What support have you seen from the entrepreneurial community to help Opstart get it launched, get it running? People, places, things, how, how have you been supported? Yeah, I can't say enough about um, the support that the community is, has provided as we've gotten up, start off the ground. And to your point, we do have a you know, mostly remote team. Our client base is mostly remote as well. You know, we work with companies everywhere, but South Bend has still embraced us with open arms, and, and I really appreciate that. We have seen um, some funding support from people in the South Bend and broader Indiana ecosystem. We, you know, in our most recent seed round, the, the lead investor is Elevate Ventures who is, is based out of Indianapolis. We have other investment from a number of angel investors who are connected with South Bend and Notre Dame in particular, um, who have been remarkably supportive over the years. From a customer standpoint, you know, we work with a number of awesome South Bend companies, some of whom work right outside here in the fabulous Stockroom East co-working space. So that's HelloFrom, that's Sleep Easy. That's tessellated. That's a number of really awesome startups in this region who I, I can't say enough good things about that are great for us to work with. And then, you know, beyond that, there are people like Aiden, like Nick around here who are just trying to genuinely help the ecosystem and help every entrepreneur here. And I think that's a really unique aspect to this community. And going back to what I, I said earlier that I, I find really, really awesome is that everybody here wants 
the startup ecosystem to grow. They want, if you are starting a company here, people want you to be successful and they're genuine about it. They're not just trying to get a piece of it. They, they really want it to thrive because they think it'll be good for South Bend. And I think it's that collective attitude that what's good for one of us is good for all of us that, that makes South Bend an awesome place to live. Couldn't agree more. I'm going to ask you the flip side of that question. Mm-hmm. What, what additional support resources could we have here that we don't currently? That's a really good question. So I, I've generally felt like what we could use in South Bend is probably additional funding and coaching. Um, as much as anything else. So there's never too much funding available for startups, except for maybe in 2020. And we could always use a little bit more resources to get companies off the ground. Um, I think there are a great number of programs here that are very helpful. But when I talk to startups in South Bend relative to startups in San Francisco or Austin or New York or pick your, pick your hub, Generally, I find that in South Bend, companies are challenged to do more with less. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just, you know, if you get an initial 50K grant or you raise a 200K pre-seed round, that's pretty exciting here in South Bend and you should be excited about it. That's awesome. But at the same time, it's really challenging to build a, a great sustainable business with that. And I think investors in other areas have gotten more accustomed to the notion that if you write a bigger check and give the company a bigger valuation, you might not own as large of a piece of it, but that company is going to have a much better chance for success. And I wish that more of the funding ecosystem in South Bend would, would come to that same realization that you need to give companies a larger amount of capital to work with for them to have any chance at success. And if you are going to give them a you know, 20K grant, no entrepreneur can really realistically build a business with that. So it's actually more wasteful to give those small checks out to everyone than it is to give a lot of support to the most promising winners. Interesting. It's a coastal mentality versus the Midwest mentality as a, as a broader perspective, brought home a little bit closer. Good advice. All right. Last question. What would put South Bend on the world map? You're from here. You, you live here. You know a lot about the region. If you were to say we are the blank of blank, what would, what would uh, qualify for South Bend as being uh, successful and known? I think South Bend should be the home of startups doing good for the world. We have a large global university with religious affiliations that prides itself on being a force for good in the world. And that is a unique asset of our town that doesn't exist really in any other Midwest town of our size, right? Let's lean into that. Let's try and convince more Notre Dame grads to stick around South Bend and work on things here that can be great for the world. You know, I, I did this. I, I went into professional services after graduation and moved to a big city to do it. A lot of graduates do that. It's a great path, but it doesn't have the same impact as going to work on a startup that can really change people's lives and solve problems for, for the world. And that can be a nonprofit, that can be a for-profit, that can be anything you'd like. But I'd love this to be an ecosystem where people can work on interesting things that have a social component to them and that make the world a better place. And I think that would be a really great way to, to match what the community's ethos is in general. This is a, a very passionate kind of collective community. It would be a great way to tie in with the resources Notre Dame has in terms of leading experts who are doing incredible projects all over the world for good. And, uh, and it would be a great way to create a unique identity that isn't just trying to make us another kind of Silicon Prairie place but that adds a, a genuine component of social good to it. Lean into your strengths. Lean into your strengths. Right on. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate you having me. Appreciate you being here.